Well, I'm aware that some of you will no doubt be fatigued and tired after yesterday, and I thank God that he is not fatigued and he is not tired after yesterday. His word is active. His word wants to communicate with us this morning. His word wants to minister to us this morning. The Holy Spirit will be doing his job and he will be pointing us to Christ this morning and what a thrill that is. So if you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. And if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it Disappointment and the Church. Disappointment and the church. Now, for those of you with a good memory, you will remember that I have preached on this text once before. It was about two and a half years ago when we did a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. And during Sanctifying the Ordinary, I did a message on disappointment, and I did it on these verses. And so I did consider for one moment this week, just skipping over this text, and moving on to the next one. So starting again in verse 19, then I really felt convicted by the Lord that I should not do that, really for two reasons. Firstly, the amount of new folk we've had join us in the last two and a half years. And it would be a bit odd then for you to discover that there is a gap and just being forced to go on the internet. And when I checked on the internet, that actual message didn't record, so it's not even there for you to listen to. Secondarily, I'm aware that given the importance and significance of this topic, I think it's one that we shouldn't avoid. You see, when it comes to disappointment and the church, I submit to you it's not a matter of if we will be disappointed with the church. It's a matter of when. At some point in your lives, you will be disappointed with the church. And so I think this text really prepares us for that moment. It talks to us about that moment, about what we are to do to maintain the unity even in the midst of disappointment with the church. And so we're going to read from verse 12 through to the verse, end of verse 18. I'm aware I've already preached on verses 12 and 13, but that has a dual purpose, both preaching by itself, but also it pertains to the bit after it, which we're going to spend most of our time on. And so let's read from chapter 2, verse 12, through to the end of verse 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless, and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. It is alive and active. 
It pierces our soul. It speaks to our very being. Lord, I thank you. Your word isn't just some historical document that we read and reminisce about. It's a book that we read and a book that reads us and communicates to our very being. Lord, I do pray today that we would be sobered, that we would be encouraged, that we would be equipped to understand ever increasingly how we may stand together in unity even in the midst of disappointment. So Lord, give us grace to hear, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, like every other new family, Emma and I set off on our trip to Coz many years ago with high expectations. You see, it was our first trip as a family. Josh was about one years old, is that right? He was about one. And so we set off to the Greek island of Coz, which when you're in Britain is, is no big deal. Here you think, oh, Coz, that sounds amazing. When you're in Britain, that's two hours on a plane and, and you're looking forward to it. But we set off with massively high expectations. Emma and I and this one-year-old little boy, we were convinced that, I mean, we had read the brochure and the brochure looked pretty nice. And so the hotel itself, you're thinking this is going to be like, probably like heaven when we arrive. And we were convinced that because we had trained Josh so well, clearly, you know, he, he was now sitting up at one. So, so we were convinced that he would probably just sit there and enjoy the scenery with all of us. So we'd sit on the beach and he would sit in this dinghy that we'd bought him because we, you know, we, we preferred him and we, we bought him stuff. So we bought him this dinghy and we were convinced that I would lie on one towel and Emma would lie on another towel and Josh would sit in his dinghy and look out for 12 hours a day onto the beautiful ocean. And we were convinced that in the evenings it would be like date night for Emma and I and Josh would just sit there and just enjoy mum and dad loving one another uh, and Emma and I would have some beautiful romantic time together. We set off on that holiday with high and unrealistic expectations. And I kid you not, those were at least my expectations. I think Emma had realistic expectations, but I had images in my mind of a, practically a second honeymoon with a one-year-old. <laughs> However, my high expectations, my unrealistic expectations, encountered some harsh realities. When we arrived at that hotel, it did indeed look a little more primitive than the brochure had suggested. We were dropped off at our hotel at midnight. And midnight in Greece, there aren't really any street lamps, and so midnight is midnight. There's no, you can't see anything. And so they literally threw us out of a taxi, drove off, and there was Emma and I and this one-year-old boy in a pushchair with me with all the bags, and we can't see anything at all about what's going on. And yet, so I get these bags, and we're sort of randomly knocking on doors, that it, hoping it might be our room. And, and eventually, we come across a room that, that is our room, and yeah, it was a little bit more primitive than the brochure had suggested. When we turned our light on, you know, you see these cockroaches running for freedom, um, and you think... Okay, well, that's not quite as I had in mind. And the actual room was a lot smaller than the wide-angle lens had put in the brochure. And what I could see through the light is the swimming pool that looked like, you know, Olympic standard on the brochure was the size of a small pond. And so it was a little bit disappointing, uh, to say the least. We went to sleep, we got up the next day, and we, we did what we'd always hoped. We took Josh to the beautiful scenery, of course, so that he could sit on the beach in his dinghy uh, and look out at the sea. So I set up on my towel, Emma set up on her towel, we put Josh in his dinghy. Within two seconds, that boy was out of his dinghy, he was eating the sand, he was burning his legs on the sand, and you think, 
this is going to be a very, very long holiday. And you're like, Josh, can you just sit in your dinghy? And what you've got to understand, Josh, Josh couldn't communicate when he was small. He had, a, he, he had a cleft palate, so he couldn't actually speak. Or, but but I don't, when, when, you, when you hear me say that, I don't want you to think that he was a quiet boy. Because <laughs> he could wail. He knew his way around crying. He knew his way around screaming. So I was lying on my towel, Emma's lying on her towel. This boy is screaming, he's getting out the dinghy, he's crawling on the floor, he's eating the sand, he's burning his legs. Well, in the evening, we head off, having spent the afternoon and most of the day in our apartment that wasn't quite as the brochure suggested, um, just looking after Josh. We went out for our evening meal. Emma looked lovely. I tried my best. (laughs) Josh came with us. And he was all right on the way. But as soon as we sat down for our meal, this boy erupted in tears like I've never heard anybody in my life. I thought he may need to be exercised by the time he had finished. This boy was crying, he was, he was screaming, he was wailing, everybody's looking at us. And so there's, clearly he's not going to be consoled, so, so it was my turn first to push him around. So I got out of my seat, Emma looks lovely, she's clearly waiting for me to return, and all, Josh is just crying his eyes out, and now and again I would just glance over into the restaurant and give Emma a wave... She would wave back, and, and that was pretty much how the holiday uh, unraveled throughout the whole time. I don't think I dated my wife at all. There was one of us, at least, pushing Josh around the whole time. I had high expectations on that holiday and realistic expectations on that holiday, and they encountered the harsh realities of life, of trial, and of my sin. And I was disappointed. I was really disappointed. My disappointed very quickly became grumbling and complaining. You know, that feeling of disappointment and that experience of high or unreasonable expectations encountering harsh realities resulting in disappointment, that isn't just confined to holidays, is it? Happens in so many areas of life. Happens in our families, happens in our friendships, happens in our work life, happens in our social structures. We have high expectations. They encounter the harsh realities of life and trial and people's sin. And we can so easily end up disappointed. And the reality is we are particularly susceptible to it, I believe, in the local church as well. Particularly in a church that's only four and a half years old. You set off on this adventure together and you go through starting point and you think, this, I know it isn't heaven, but it sounds like it on starting point. And the expectations go through the roof of what this is going to mean. Life group sounds like Acts chapter 2. And you arrive and you realise it's not quite like Acts chapter 2. And so you have these really high expectations, unrealistic expectations of what local church is going to be. And then those high expectations and hopes encounter the harsh realities of people's sin, of people's gift limitations, trial, difficulty. And before you know it, you are disappointed in the local church as well. And I submit to you, as I said before, it's not if that happens. It's when. Because it will happen to you at some point. And so today I think Paul wants to do all he can through this beautiful book of the Philippians letter to prepare us for that inevitability. And to answer the question, what should we do then when we find ourselves disappointed with the church? What should we do 
when we find that the high expectations and hopes we had have been met with the harsh realities and ended up with disappointment, what should we actually do in that moment? And I thank God for this passage because it's this passage in this text where Paul answers that question for us, indeed where God answers that question for us through the Apostle Paul. See, it would appear, as you're very well aware by now, that in the Philippian church, disappointment has indeed come knocking. They're going through some difficulties, and to some degree, it seems to be ending up in disunity. Now, we don't know what they're grumbling about. It's hinted to us now and again. It would appear to be that they're disappointed and grumbling about the leaders. They're disappointed and they're grumbling about Paul himself. And they appear to be disappointed and grumbling with each other. In chapter 4, we see two individuals actually called out on it. And forever, for eternity, they're in Scripture as the grumbling ones. And Paul calls them out on the grumbling that is taking place. They seem to be struggling with some form of disunity in this church as a fruit of disappointment, ending up in grumbling and complaining. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, and going all the way through to chapter 2, verse 18, Paul issues this church with one long emotion-filled exhortation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's his point. His point is, guys, you've been saved by grace. So live in a manner worthy of the gospel that you've received. Live in a manner of what he has done for you. Wear your salvation like a medal. You'll never be able to earn it, but exhibit it in your lives by pulling together a unity. And his emphasis all the time, the one nail he continues to hammer all the way through from chapter 1 verse 27 to chapter 2 verse 18 is the vital importance of having unity in heart and mind for the sake of the gospel. So he gives us that wonderful picture in chapter 1 verse 27 of the Roman battalion. The Roman battalion standing together with their shields ready, with their armour ready, standing as one unit. Both standing for the gospel and also striving forward for the gospel, but as one, as one unit. Not just a random army running to the distance, all doing their maverick thing for Jesus, but standing together as one unit, exactly like the Roman battalions would have done. In chapter 2 then, verses 5 through 11, he gives us a picture of Jesus picture of the one who laid down his life for us. It says in verse 7, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He gives us this wonderful illustration of the way Jesus has done it in preferring other people, on pursuing other people in humility, even giving his life as a ransom for many. And in chapter 2 then, verse 12, he transitions from theological contemplation to practical application through this one word, chapter 2, verse 12, therefore. His whole premise is in light of all of this, in light of the importance of it is that you stand together for the gospel, in light of the importance of what Jesus Christ has done for you, therefore, my beloved, in light of the gospel, this then is how we're called to live. In particular, in light of the gospel, This is what you're to do when disappointment comes knocking. That's what had happened in Philippians. But I submit to you, it's what happens in church life all the time. So Paul is preparing us for that disappointment. 
That's why I believe God has brought this into Scripture so that we can learn from it as to what to do when disappointment comes knocking. And so standing on the shoulders of men like Motier and Ferguson and Mahaney and Carson, men who I love and respect, men who have taught on these passages, there's three things that I want to draw out for us this morning that I believe Paul is teaching us very clearly as to what we are to do when disappointment comes knocking. See, disappointment has great... it has great consequences. When we don't grasp our disappointment and deal with our disappointment, disappointment always bears the fruit of disunity. Where it grows, disunity happens. So this is important. And this is sober. So what do we do when we're disappointed with the church? Well, three things, and here's the first. Number one, actively identify the sovereign work of God. The first thing we must do when we start to feel disappointed with the church, we need to actively identify the sovereign work of God. Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the pronouncement he makes right at the start of this text, right at the start of the therefore. His point is simple. His point is easy to grasp. His point is that God is at work in you. As a church and as individuals, God is at work in you. You see, that should be without doubt a happy discovery for all Christians. It is an encouragement and a comfort. The reality is that God is at work at you, that he is relentlessly as one who neither slumbers nor sleeps, never gets tired, never gets fatigued, he is relentlessly and ceaselessly working in you. The one who began your salvation before there was even time, the one who at the right time sent his son, the one who at the right time now indwells in you in the personal work of the Holy Spirit, he is relentlessly and ceaselessly at work in you. That is such an encouragement and a comfort, is it not? When you realise the high and holy calling on your life as a Christian and you start to be overwhelmed and you realise, I don't think I can pull this off. God says, you can't, in and of yourself. So I'm going to come and be with you. I'm going to come into your life and I'm going to help you. I'm going to work in your will. I'm going to work in your life. I'm going to aid you in effect, to serve me. This is such an encouraging and comforting point to all Christians, but it's also, I believe, an encouraging and comforting point for the church. And this is written in the context of the church, the reality that God is at work in us. He's the one. He's the one taking people from every tribe and language and nation and knitting them together in the context of church. He is the one who by divine grace brought you into the doors of Sovereign Grace Church at some point in your life, you felt quickened to join the church and the promise is God's at work in that. He's going to be doing that for how long? Well, chapter 1, verse 6. How long? Well, he says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, that's good news. He's never going to leave us. The one who started it is going to sustain us. He's always going to be with us. He's going to ceaselessly and tirelessly continue to work in our lives. That is such an encouragement and comfort, I believe. But Paul, if you understand him correctly in context, 
is not just seeking to bring us encouragement and comfort. I think he's seeking to point us to something. I think he's seeking to point us to something that is of immeasurable value when it comes to understanding what we should be doing when disappointment comes knocking. Namely, we should be actively identifying the sovereign work of God. See, in verse 13, the question that is pertaining to every church is not the reality of God being at work. He tells us that. He tells us, no, God is at work in you. He always will be, ceaselessly and tirelessly until he returns. The question then isn't the reality of whether he's at work. The question is one of, do you see it or not? The question isn't reality, the question is perception. Do you see him at work? And here's the reality, my friends. When it comes to disappointment, and I've seen people get disappointed over the last 14 and a half years of being a pastor, when it comes to the reality of disappointment, we're not dealing with a reality that is real. We're dealing with what people perceive. And given the nature of indwelling sin that happens and is present in all of our lives, because of the nature and presence of indwelling sin, it is far easier when we are disappointed to identify deficiencies in the church. That's easy. You would never pay a pastor full time to identify deficiencies because everybody does that. We can all be like Christian smoke alarms when we're disappointed. We start to see things everywhere in the church that suck and you're just aware everywhere I look there are problems. Given the nature of indwelling sin in our lives, we will always quickly and easily identify deficiencies. And if you come to me with deficiencies, I could give you a list that's twice as long. It's not hard to see deficiencies. What is hard sometimes is to perceive God at work. And given the presence and reality of indwelling sin, given the presence and reality that then we can all quickly identify deficiencies, if we don't actively identify grace, if we don't actively pause and identify God at work in a church, guess what we will feel? Disappointment. That's all you'll see. All the problems. All the things that should be better. And you will be profoundly disappointed with the church. And I know it because I've experienced it. Experienced it in reality many times. Remember when I was a younger guy and I used to go to Christian conferences. The thing that I loved about Christian conferences, particularly New Attitude, which is a Sovereign Grace one, and some years ago all the Sovereign Grace young folk would gather together across the world. There'd be about three to 4,000 young people there. You'd be worshipping Jesus. It was like Christian utopia. It was great. Nobody had any pressures. You all had money because your mum had given you some and so off you'd go. And you'd be there, you'd be eating together, you'd be laughing together. Your whole premise is, oh, how can I serve you today? Everybody's serving one another. It's all Jesus. You're singing great songs. You're led by this band that's like, my goodness, this is so good. You're hearing preaching that is like of international standard. Every message is like knocked out the park. You're starting to feel emotional. You're hugging Christians and they're just telling you, oh, I love you so much and I love you too. And so this whole experience is like Christian utopia. And then you go back to your own church and the band doesn't sound like that. And you think, you know, we could just do with an electric guitar player and 
You know, we just need, I don't know, something more, just like it was at the conference. And then the preacher gets up and he preaches and you're like, you know, you don't, you don't seem to preach like Matt Chandler. I mean, you know, you're not bad, but not being effective in the way I was then. And then you hang out at the end and you find, you, you know, people aren't hugging me like I was at the conference. And before you know it, all you can see in this local church are deficiencies. This church is unfriendly, the band suck, they clearly don't prepare at all preaching. Oh, it's got real issues, I probably need to find another church. All you can see are deficiencies in the local church. That's what I did many, many times. I remember when my pastors first started to take me under his wing and train me to pastoral ministry, <coughs> he introduced me to people like Driscoll, and Keller, and Piper, and Mahaney, all guys I'd never heard of, and so got me different messages, and got me listening to these messages, and all I remember is thinking, these guys, these guys are amazing, I'm coming alive under their preaching, the gospel is like, the gospel is amazing, and the very man that had given me the tapes was the guy that I listened to every week, and so as I listened to every week, week by week, I was thinking, yeah, your preaching's got some challenges, um, you know, I've loved it for years, but right now, you're not preaching like C.J. Mahaney is. And John Piper preaches a bit better than that. And all I was starting to identify is deficiencies. Unaware of grace, losing sight of grace, but identifying deficiencies. I remember when this local church first started, I'd come from a big church where we did a, a lot of stuff for the community and where we put on events and there'd be several thousand people there and we enjoyed that. And I remember coming here and going to the Hornsby Community Carols and just thinking, ow, I want this. I want to do this. I mean, I know we've only been going for three months, but surely we should be able to sort something else out like this. And, and I remember we had organised to have a stall at this Hornsby Community Carols, and we were giving out some like yo-yos and things, and trying to tell people about Jesus and invite them to our service. It was, it was just really, really good. But, but here's what happened on that night. I spent nearly all the night quietly to myself, grumbling and complaining, because my whole premise was. Where's the rest of this stinking church on this door? Why are we not running this? Why are other people having to run this when, you know, allegedly we're a church plant that's sticking to tell people about Jesus? And I was aware that so many people had really valid reasons why they couldn't make it, there was stuff on, there was family issues, and that was all fine. But in my heart, in that moment, all I remember thinking is, what is the problem with this church? People don't serve like they do at this Hornsby Community Church. You know, we've moved all this way. What's the problem with this church? I remember Jesse coming and just saying, oh Dave, you know, you don't seem to be uh, very happy. I said, no. I said, well, what's up? And he said, uh, I said, well, you'd be honest, you know, why can't we run this? And he just said, well, this church has been going for 25 years plus. We've been going for about three months and I think you need to lower your expectations. And I was addressed by the Lord through this faithful brother and he was right. All I could see was disappointment, deficiencies, problems. I started to grumble and complain. How did that happen? Well, I took my eyes off seeing the active work of God in this local church. So I started to see deficiencies rather than Him and His grace and what He was doing all the way back then, some four and a bit years ago. So what do we do? What's the remedy to avoiding that path towards disappointment? Well, we need to, number one, actively identify the sovereign work of God. And I submit to you, if the Apostle Paul can do this, anybody can do this. I mean, the Corinthian church, if you study the Corinthian church in particular, the Corinthian church is awful. 
They're a nightmare of a church. There is open adultery going on in the midst of this local church. There is drunkenness going on in the midst of this local church. They are using the bread and wine as opportunities for the rich people to take all the food and eat it so that the poor people don't have any. And the rich people are taking all the wine and getting drunk off it and the rest of them don't have anything. And then they're spending all the time moaning at poor, moaning at each other. They're taking people to court. They're taking each other to court. This local church has got serious problems and yet Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians saying this, I always thank my God in remembrance of you. You what? You know, I could think of many things I might have wanted to communicate to that local church. That may not have been one of them. But to Paul, he thanks God always in his remembrance of them. How is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because he sees evidences of grace all the time. But he goes on to list them. He says, I see God at work in you in this. And I see God at work in you in this. And I see God at work in you in this. So how do we do that? Well, by, by way of practical application, just a couple of things that, that may help you, particularly if you're new to, to pausing and seeing God's grace at work in people's lives. Number one, before gathering with the church, I want to encourage you to create time to reflect on who you are outside of God's saving grace. See, I think sometimes we have high expectations that are too high because we think too lofty of ourselves. But then when we pause and we remember, outside of saving grace, I was running to hell. I was uninterested in God, uninterested in people. That has quite a transforming effect as you attend an event when you realise who you really are before the Lord. As if before you even come into a gathering, create time to reflect on who you are outside of saving grace. And number two, before gathering with the church, create time to immerse yourself in two lists. The fruits of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, and the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Here's what I can guarantee to you. If you do that, If before gathering you spend time reflecting on who you really are outside of saving grace and you spend time reflecting on the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit, you will come into that gathering with new eyes and you will start to see God's everywhere. He's everywhere. Yesterday at Brendan's wedding, I saw God in you everywhere. That was all evidences of his work in your life. His profound and gracious work in your life. Same people, different eyes. Same people in the church, different perspective. So what do we do when disappointment comes knocking? Well, number one, we actively identify the sovereign work of God. But that's not all. Number two, we avoid the temptation to grumble And complain. With me at verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You know, the thing that I love about that verse is it is totally comprehensive in nature, isn't it? Do all things. He doesn't give any wiggle room to say, Well, yeah, but surely it's all right to complain and grumble in this environment. He goes, Negative. Do all things. Whatever you do, in everything you do, 
ensure it is void of grumbling and complaining. There is no hyperbole here. This is a comprehensive command from the Apostle Paul himself. And when it says the word questioning there, he's not talking about humbly saying, hey, could I ask you a question? I just didn't understand that. Or I'm struggling with maybe what you've said there. It's not what he's talking about. It is a question of complaint. It's a complaint. So the whole premise is grumbling and complaining. Questioning in a way that in reality you're registering complaint after complaint after complaint. And Paul's point is that should not be so on you. If you're going to maintain the unity, if you're going to stand together as one, you must ensure that you do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, folks, I submit to you that when disappointment comes, the temptation to grumble and complain will inevitably arrive. It will. When you are disappointed with the church, one of the first things you will feel is, I want to complain about it. I want to grumble about it. But I want to urge you that this command is an absolutely vital one. If we are going to maintain a unity in this local church, and if any church is going to maintain a unity, this is not one we should quickly brush over. As if, well, you know, we'll try our best. This is vital. Grumbling and complaining should have no part in our story of Sovereign Grace Church. Why is that? Why is it that God has arranged it? Why is it that Paul is so busy emphasising that? Why has God put this in Scripture for local churches? Well, there's some important reasons. See, firstly, our grumbling and complaining, first and foremost, is a sin before the Lord. Do you realise that? Do you realise that when we are complaining and grumbling about something, We're sinning against God himself. We are allowing poison to come forward out of our mouth in the form of complaint and grumbling that is a stench before the Lord. And you know, I think so often we don't realise that because we're seduced by the world. And in being seduced by the world, the reality is that complaining, I think, is the common language of our culture, isn't it? So we just think of it as the norm. See, I experienced that no end in England, in the UK. Because if there's one thing we do well in the UK is we grumble and complain. We know our way around a moan. I mean, it just is. It is a cultural trend that we know how to moan and complain and grumble about things. And we do it really, really well. I mean, it's just a, it is just a cultural trait. That's why people like soap operas. Because then there's other people that we pretend are real that we can moan and complain about them as well. So you go to work and say, oh, did you see on EastEnders last night? Yes. Oh, it was awful. I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. Oh, no, me neither. And this is the way English people talk all the time. It's wet. It rains. You feel like you're living in Tupperware most of your life. It went, before we left Wales, it rained for 90 days in a row. And it's cold. The only reason why you know it's summer is because the rain is warm. You know, it just rains... <laughs> all the time. And we moan about it. We moan about the weather, we moan about people, we moan about friendships, we moan about the church, and it is a culturally imbibed norm. Now, I have found it less so in Australia, and I'm grateful for that, but I think we would be naive to think that it isn't here. Because complaint, in all reality, I think, is the language of this culture as well. 
It doesn't take long when you go out with people to the unbelievers. For if you are perceptive to what we are talking about, you realise this is grumbling and this is complaining. My friends, we must not be seduced by the world into thinking that that is okay. Because it is not. And the Apostle Paul's whole premise here is do all things without grumbling or questioning. Yes, that is the language of your culture. But it should not be so among you. As you stand together as one, as you stand in unity in the context of a local church, grumbling and complaining, it shouldn't have a part of what you are doing. He says then in, in, in light of verses 5 through 11, the whole premise of what Jesus has done, the reason, the premise is, in light of all that Jesus has done, we should not grumble and complain. Why? Because grumbling in reality is ungrateful accusation towards God divide, uh, uh, regarding his divine providence. Do you see that? Grumbling, we think of it as horizontal, don't we? I'm just complaining about you. No. You're complaining about the God's providence behind that person. Oh, well, that that changes things a little bit. See, when we grumble, we think that we're just complaining in the horizontal, but in reality, we are making an accusation against the providence of God, as if to say, well, God, I'm experiencing it in the horizontal, and I do believe you're sovereign, so clearly, you've blown it. You've allowed this to happen in my local church. You've allowed that leader to do this in this local church. So the grumbling is horizontal, but in reality, it's vertical. It's an accusation against the goodness of God, his sovereignty and his providence. If indeed we do believe in his sovereignty and providence, which I believe we do, grumbling is a vertical accusation. That's why the Apostle Paul hearkens back here to Israel's time in the wilderness through specific wording in this text. See, the whole premise of Israel's time in the wilderness, just weeks after God has miraculously and graciously delivered them, I mean, their lives have been dramatically and incredibly saved. Within weeks, what are they doing? They're walking around the wilderness and clearly they are English people because as they walk around the wilderness, they are grumbling and they are complaining. They complain about the food, they complain about the heat, they complain about the leaders, they complain about the weather, they're just complaining about all the different things. They are moaning and moaning and moaning. And Paul's whole premise is that should not be psalm on you. If we were the Corinthian church, you would discover that he actually turns back in the Corinthian church to that, to Numbers chapter 14, and starts talking about, talk about how they were an example for us of not to follow. And then the Philippian church is doing the same thing. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Why? Because first and foremost, it's a sin before the Lord. That's not all. Our grumbling and complaining can also have serious and significant damage on others. And my friends, it can. First, it damages the church. See, sin is indeed a stench before the Lord. But grumbling, left unchecked, without doubt, has a disunifying effect on a local church. Grumbling and complaining has a dividing effect on on the local church. And the reason for that, I think, is because so often you discover that chronic grumblers are chronic recruiters. 
They never keep grumbling by themselves. They, they recruit others to grumble with them. I have no idea how this happens in the context of the local church, but it does. Grumblers find each other. And there is a recruiting effect that grumbling brings. In a recent article called Breaking the Grumbler's Grip, one pastor says as follows. He says, Grumblers often express disagreement in unbiblical ways, seldom taking the issue directly to those who can resolve it. If a grumbler dislikes the pastor preaching, a dozen people will hear about it before the pastor does. If a board decision doesn't sit well with them, they broadcast it to everyone except the elders. And along the way, grumblers tend to aggressively build support for their cause. Unwilling to remain a minority opinion, they beat the bushes for sympathizers, hoping to reverse consensus or block implementation of decisions. And another favorite tactic of grumblers is the Gideon strategy, creating an appearance of greater numbers. Quote, I'm not the only one that feels this way. There are a number of families talking about leaving the church. And so often when they are pressed, they refuse to talk specifics. I'd have to say, in 14 and a half years of pastoral ministry, I have found that quote to be exactly true. When you sit with a grumbler, they're nice to you. But you're aware when that grumbler sits with others, they're saying things. They're dividing. They're speaking ill. They're causing division. That's why Paul says there needs to be no grumbling and complaining among you. You will divide what God has put together. You will disunify what God, through the gospel, has unified. Grumbling and complaining damages others and it also has a damaging effect not only on the church but on our corporate witness. An issue that Paul then talks about in verse 15. Look at this. He says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And his whole premise is you live in a crooked and twisted generation. So live as lights. Live differently. Grumbling and complaining is the language of the culture, so in the local church, be different. Live without blemish. Live as one, having been affected by the gospel. Reveal that to the world. Having been affected by Jesus Christ, lower yourself like he did. Walk in humility and resist disunity by resisting complaining and grumbling so that people in the world will see you. They'll see you as different. They'll see you shining as a light on a hill. They'll see you as the people that God has called you to be. And so why is it so important that grumbling and complaining be purged? Well, it's important because our grumbling and complaining, first and foremost, is a sin before the Lord. But our grumbling and complaining can also have a serious and significant damage on others, a damage on the church and a damage on our corporate witness. And so Paul's whole point is it should therefore have nothing to do with you. It should not be so among you. And so when those high and often unrealistic expectations collide with the harsh realities of life and trial and other people's sin in the context of local church, you will feel the temptation in the midst of disappointment to grumble and complain. 
Friends, I want to urge you, for the sake of the Gospel, for the sake of unity, for the sake of love for the Lord, resist it. Don't let grumbling and complaining come out of your mouth. And likewise, I want to encourage you, don't let grumbling and complaining be prolonged into your ears. See, I think sometimes we can be so unwise in that. We're aware, well, I'm not personally grumbling and complaining. No, but are you listening to it prolonged? Is there at some point a time in your life where you go, my friend, I want to love you enough to say, that, that sounds like a grumbling or a complaint. Have you considered that? You know, that, that individual in our life group that you, you regularly seem to grumble or complain about, have you shared that with them? Oh, no. Well, then, I don't think you should be telling me anything more about it because at worst that's slander, at best it's gossip. You need to imbibe scripture and go and talk to them about it. Love them. Friends, we must guard our mouths against complaining and grumbling, but we must also guard our ears. And then number three, we must hold fast to the word of life. Look with me at verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. My friends, when our high and often unrealistic expectations collide with the harsh realities of life, resulting in disappointment and then often formulating and bearing fruit of complaint and grumbling, we must first of all actively identify the sovereign work of God. That's what we must first of all do. We then must avoid the temptation to grumbling and complaint. Here then is the final part of the puzzle that's so important. We must hold fast in that moment in the midst of disappointment, we must hold fast to the gospel. What is Paul saying there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Sovereign Grace Church, when disappointment comes, you need to tighten your grip on the gospel. You need to rally behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. When disappointment comes to your door, you must tighten your grip on the gospel. Why? Well, because it is the gospel and the gospel alone that can fully address your disappointment. My friends, I believe he's so right. See, the Apostle Paul knew that the gospel was powerful. He always knew it. That's why he keeps maintaining all the time that it is the main thing. It's the one thing he wants to keep preaching time and time again. He knows the gospel is the power of God and to salvation. He's aware that it's through the gospel that people become Christians and it's through the preaching of this message that people go from darkness to light and are saved. He knows it's the truth of the gospel that it gives us fight against legalism and condemnation and subjectivism. It says we preach the gospel and allow it to dwell in our hearts that we realize I'm, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so all the things I do, I'm not earning salvation through those things. I can never earn salvation through those things. I've earned salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ in my place. It's the gospel that reminds us of all those things. But it's also the gospel, I believe, that helps us fight inevitable disappointment. Which is why Paul says when disappointment comes, we need to hold fast to the word of life. Mark Dever then says it this way. He says, friends, 
If you are spending your Christian life looking for those sweet little circumstances that will give you satisfaction, abandon your search. Christian, if you are spending your life right now looking for a church that will ultimately give you satisfaction, then abandon the search. The last circumstance lied to you and the one just over the horizon is lying to you as well because satisfaction is to be found in Christ and Him alone. What wonderful and godly advice that is. See, your spouse may bring you great joy and good spouses bring great joy into the context of marriage. But good spouses make lousy gods. They never satisfy. Children can bring great joy into the context of a home. They can make you smile. On occasion they can make you despair. But they can make you smile and they can bring you great joy. Children can bring great joy into a home. But children are lousy gods. They never satisfy. Friendships can bring great joy to the soul and great joy to life. But friendships make lousy gods. And churches are so important as biblically defined. Churches, when it operates as an army and as a family and as a hospital, can bring great joy for the soul. But churches make lousy gods. Because they'll let you down. Given the nature of life, given the nature of sin, given the nature of limited giftings, that they can't satisfy you. And Mr. Devlin is right. Satisfaction is to be found in Christ and Him alone. C.J. Mahaney then says it this way. He said, It is only the gospel that could put our lives and disappointments into their proper perspective. There is no circumstance that you are ever going to come upon, however mature your church becomes, that will ultimately protect you from some form of disappointment. There is no church, however mature, that will ultimately satisfy you. Your church, in every context, even your closest friends, they are all at some point going to disappoint you. Your church will not be able to ultimately satisfy you. No. It is only the gospel that can ultimately satisfy you and protect you from inevitable disappointments as we work out church life in the context of this fallen world, which includes our active and remaining sin. Listen. Only the gospel. My friends, disappointment in the church is inevitable. And I can almost guarantee you at some point you will be disappointed with this church. You will at some point be disappointed with me. I will disappoint you. Due to limited gifting, due to indwelling sin in my life, I will never deliberately be trying to disappoint you. I will never deliberately be trying to offend you from words that come out of my mouth. But given the fact that you hear so many of my words over a year, it seems to only take two or at best three to offend someone, the odds are on. But at some point, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to offend you. Your life fruit, at some point, disappoint you. 
You will have had high expectations of it and those expectations won't have been realised. They will have been interacted and collided with the harsh realities and you'll be disappointed. Your friendships that are often great at some point, they will disappoint you. And this wider church, although for me it is the crowning glory of my life, it's not God. And it will disappoint you. My friends, I want to encourage you when that happens and being aware that that inevitability will come, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the gospel. Because it's as you spend time with Jesus, as you stand around Calvary again, that you'll realise, it's astounding grace that I'm even saved. It's astounding grace that he called my name to even walk in those doors and be a part of any local church. It's an expression of his profound love for me. It's around Calvary we shrink to our true size. It's around Calvary I think we return to the same church with new eyes. We see something different. So hold fast to the word of life. My friends, it's not a matter of if you will be disappointed with a church. Given our often high hopes and given the realities of harsh realities, it's a matter of when you'll be disappointed with the church, not if. So when that happens, I want to encourage you, actively identify then the sovereign work of God. See him in the people. See him at work. And I guarantee to you, he is everywhere. Avoid the temptation to grumble and complain. And in the midst of it all, hold fast to the gospel. And here then is what I believe will be the effect. Chapter 1, verse 27. You will in that moment be letting the manner of your life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that this message is not corrective. It doesn't need to be corrective. It's preventative. Lord, I thank you for the unity that in your incredible kindness we do experience in this local church. And we do recognise that's an expression of your care for us. And it's an expression of the obedience and godliness of the members of this local church. Lord, did you help us then to continue to stand together as one, gathering around the glorious gospel of your Son, holding fast to it, avoiding grumbling and quickly to identify and celebrate evidences of your grace, your sovereign work in other members' lives. Lord, help us to hold fast to the truth that this church isn't about me. This church is about you. It's about your work. And it's about others. So Lord, help us to be like you, thinking about your Father, and thinking about others. And would grace abound to us then in unity, together, till the end. Amen.